if you have a large and growing audience um, in, a, in a category that people are passionate about, you know, it's likely that you're on our list. Let's get this party started. <laughs> Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at the news and the views from the media world every single week. And my gosh, there's a lot of it this week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you heard was from my interview with Lance Johnson, CEO of Recurrent Media. You might not have heard of Recurrent Media, but you will have heard of their brands, Donut, Domino, Server, and Popular Science. We spoke about the group's acquisition strategy, which is pretty full on, how they're different from the usual private equity VC companies that we come across, and what you need to do to get bought by Recurrent. It's really so interesting talking to someone that understands the finance part of that, but also understands the point of quality content. It's a really good chat. Hey, speaking of people who understand finance and quality content, we've been asking for um, people's help this last week. So we published an open letter to the listeners <laughs> explaining why this year is effectively make or break for us. So you can read the entire open letter on Voices.media. But if you missed it, the podcast as it stands isn't currently working for us, and we're asking for your help to try and fix that. So we've had a great response to that so far. It's been really gratifying to see people share that letter, visit our Kofi page, get in contact with us directly to offer, you know, potential meetings and all this kind of stuff. So please do visit that site if you have any ideas for how to help fix those issues, financial, burnout-related, workflow, all of the above. Um, we would love to hear them. So our top story is the ongoing saga of the removed story on the Times and Sunday Times about Boris Johnson being caught in a compromising situation with his then mistress, Carrie. Well, that uh, Carrie wasn't Johnson the actual now. story, though, was it? No. <laughs> well, Esther, why don't you take us through what the actual story was? See, before we go any further, can I just get this off my chest? Yeah. And then I'll promise to focus on the actual <laughs> details of the story. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I absolutely hate these bastards. I hate what they're doing to our country. I hate what they're doing to politics. I hate what they're doing to media. I hate what they are doing to the standard of morality. I've just, uh, I hate the bastards. Okay. Okay. Next, move well, on. This is, the th- this is the thing, because the main point of the story is what they're doing to media and particularly the public's perception of media in the UK. So Esther, go. Okay, so um, an article appeared, I think, early last week in The Times about Boris Johnson trying to get his now wife, Carrie, a government job when he was foreign secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was having an affair with her at the time while his then wife was undergoing cancer treatment. But again, let's move on from That's the just... morality of it. Um, so the, the, the story was about you know Boris Johnson trying to get Carrie a, a government job. Um, the journalist who wrote it then queried why it suddenly disappeared from the digital edition. Can we not um, call her Carrie? Say- that makes us sound like soft and innocent. Well, it's Mrs. Johnson. It's Mistress, a, maybe? Be, yeah. No, it, well, it, it disappeared from the, I think, later print editions, but the actual morning print editions are already gone out by the time that this happened. So, so people were sort of comparing online, like, oh, I've got this story here, but it had been like, replaced in the digital version online. Um, and it's, it, so the story itself, you know, that, that's not a great look if you're trying to get your girlfriend a government job, but it's not the worst thing that's come out. Um because he he didn't succeed in getting another job. He was advised against it. Um, so lots of people were then piling onto the Times like, why have you removed this? 
Um, the Times, to this, Chris, I'm sure you've got an update on this. The Times are very much just saying there are legal issues. That, yeah. That's all they will say on the matter. It's, so- it's, I spoke to their press <laughs> office this week and they were saying, yeah, it's just unspecified legal issues. I asked for clarification and didn't get any. So a week or so later, Private Eye has, um, if you're on Twitter, this this is, is all sort of blown up over the last day or two. Private Eye has, has got to, sort of got to the bottom of why the Prime mm, Minister and Carrie really, actually wanted the peace. Really you can't talk about this story without like, saying oh. well, then you end or? I know, that's exactly I'm, what I'm saving it, I'm saving it. So oh, no. the, the, there was this tiny line in the original story that um, a, a, a minister had walked in on Carrie and Boris in a compromising position. Well, um, like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Let's not call them by these warm, fuzzy first names. Yeah. Um, it, it now turns out that Northern Ireland Minister Connor Burns had walked in on... Um, it walked no, on Carrie, must- giving Boris Johnson a blowjob. His, yeah. his mistress. Okay, so can I just can I just extend a bit of a theory? Can here I about can I just the, do a feminism um- thing here? She <laughs> she first and foremost did have a a proper job. She is a proper person in herself. She's not just his mistress. I'm not going to reduce her to that. Okay, I think she, she reduced herself. She's to that, kind of done that for her own. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Fair you know, if you yoke yourself to a dick. But by trying to suppress this, it's basically exploded. I'm more annoyed oh, about well, that job than I am about the blow job, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> As you should be. But here's so here's the thing. So the the timeline of this is really interesting because it it initially appeared in the first run of the print editions, and I was talking to well very briefly to Alistair Reed on um, Twitter about this because we don't understand how the timeline put forward in Private Eye matches what happens here because the the implication from Private Eye is that um, Downing Street were more concerned about that compromising position line. They didn't want anything about this specific sexual act to come out in the story. So they le- the quote is like, Carrie Johnson's people lent on Rebecca Brooks's people and Tony Gallagher, who was, you know, he was in the editor's chat at the time, took the decision to then remove that from the subsequent stories. But as Alistair pointed out, surely somebody there could have seen the proofs ahead of that first story. Now that raises the issue of whether the story itself stood up legally. The fact that it went out in print and online to me suggests that it did stand up legally. Yeah, because what, what legal issue, given, given what's come out so far, I don't know if there's more to come out, but what, what legal issue could it possibly be? I, this is complicated even further by the fact that this story was in a book. It's a story that is undeniably in the public interest. There is absolutely no way that you can you say think? that this wasn't um, something that the public should have been informed about. And the fact that first the mail turned it down and then the Times pulled it raises the spectre of the uncomfortable, uncomfortably familiar relationship between those in power in number 10 and those in the press. And I saw Byline Times going really off on this this week, basically saying like, look, the explanation for this is the fact that Number ten, Boris Johnson gave like a bung effectively to um, favorable press outlets over the last year. In you know, over the course of the pandemic, I've effectively, never heard this. yeah, this was like in May, I think, maybe oh of this God. year, maybe last year. So yeah, uh, Adam Bienkov, who is the yep. political editor and correspondent of Byline Times, basically says Dominic Cummings says Boris Johnson personally negotiated direct bungs to newspapers in the form of COVID payments. So they're basically saying, look, there is an uncomfortably familiar relationship in the form of both financial ones and this kind of quid pro quo, we won't print stories that are too damaging to your relationship type thing. I mean, this this has That's not gone point. down well with Times readers. Interestingly, Times editors aren't removing the comments. So I had a point about this as well. So 
Um, Adam Timworth wrote a really good piece on his blog about the Streisand effect and how this is just like a really very, very uh, modern version of that, where you try to remove a story so hard that it actually draws attention to it all the more. But he, in that, he says, but, you know, fair play to the Times is like audience editors for letting those comments stand. But I don't understand what else they could have done there. You know mm. what I mean? Like if they'd removed well, it, just then that would have just down moved down the fire. Yeah, yeah. And surely if it's a legal issue, they would have been in their rights to remove those those comments as well. What a mess. It really is a mess. So Esther, your point was, you know, in light of what we spoke about in the digital news report special, what's this doing to trust? I mean, it's yeah. it's going to be really damaging. And, and I think Adam Timoth's point was especially around the fact that the the Times is a subscription-based business. It, like business, it, it lives and dies by its readers. Um, and I suppose one of the questions is, to, to what extent has this essentially alienated a, a significant enough number of the readership? Um, I mean, it'll, it'll be some time before we, well, we may never find out. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's really not good when you when <laughs> when yeah you know, the the bare bones is that the Times has reported on a story and has then for whatever reason censored it, and all the comments just reflect that their readers are just like, we want an explanation. Legal yeah. issues does not cut it. Otherwise, you know, we're pulling our subscriptions. Essentially, the problem with this is it just absolutely cements that partisan divide mm. you know so so people we are well clearly more left left leaning than right leaning certainly Chris and I Esther I won't speak for you at the moment <laughs> um, but but we we respect the times I, you know and even sometimes the telegraph for having a point of view it might not be our point of view but it's a researched and a well presented point of view because they are professional journalists but at least it's not the government's point of view. Yeah, exactly. It's being laundered. And what's going to happen is these papers are going to end up with, the only people that will subscribe will be that hardcore partisan mm. right wing, you know, nut job basically, that will accept anything in the name of a really hard Brexit or whatever else. Mm. So you get this, you know, without getting into the politics of that, you get this really polarised media landscape. It's it's a very good example of how trust is kind of you know trust takes decades to build but a second to lose and so one of the questions I had is basically how do the times come back from this because it'll always be in the back of people's minds now of what what aren't they publishing? Well, they will come back. They've done yeah. daft shit before. <laughs> um, but yeah, in the short term, one hundred percent, I think that that and this is based on nothing but speculation. I think the plan is to just kind of ride it out yeah. and pray that our gaff prone government does something so big in the yeah. next couple of weeks that. Pray that the public's going to forget about it. What what bugs me the most about this, in addition to the kind of that potential outright betrayal of the public if what Private Eye is saying is true, is the fact that Gallagher and the the Times kind of management has thrown its journalists under the bus on this one. In the in Private Eye again, they're talking about kind of that initial journalist who was basically you know fed to the wolves, and they said, oh, you know, the story has legal issues around it. But they've also thrown the lawyer who was on call that day under the bus by basically saying, well, look, it shouldn't have got to this point anyway. And the the audience team now is having to deal with this all because the Times management has decided that the line to take is silence. The problem is it not only feeds this perception, you know, Peter, like you said, of the the people who were looking to just support whatever because it pre-confirms their existing beliefs. You know, Caesar's wife, we're undergoing a trust crisis across the newspaper industry in general. And this just is fuel for the mm-hmm. fire to people who think that nobody can be trusted. You know, if the Times of London, probably like the preeminent newspaper, one of the preeminent newspapers globally, is susceptible to this kind of stuff, then who isn't? 
That's the idea of paper or record. Paper or record until they decide to pull the story. Well, look, I just want explanation of what this legal issue is. You know, I was told it was a legal issue by their press team. Any explanation would be better than none. Come on, Times. I suppose we do need to keep reminding ourselves who actually owns it. Newly back on the market. Back on the market. Murdoch, is it? And now onto the news in brief. And Substack is laying off roughly 14% of its workforce, mainly in operations. So the <laughs> this is so focused- vanilla compared to our main story. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the newsletter-focused startup is still seen as the darling of the publisher-focused newsletter world. But as a startup, it's especially exposed to some of the market tumults that surround probable recessions. <laughs> and of what are you laughing at? <laughs> you mind-going some of these words? Tumults. <laughs> But as such, the company is saying that it's cooling its ambitions and will continue to grow and expand uh, at a smaller pace. So my question is, you know, is this VC funding issue just, you know, endemic to VC funding? Or is there something more fundamental about uh, Substack's business model that makes it so exposed? Is it the rise of competitors? Is it the fact that, you know, we've seen... I think that's true. But I'm actually going to stick my neck out here and say this is good news. You think it's right-sizing? It's not good news for the people that are getting laid off. But the way they framed this is that rather than go for another funding round, they're going to focus on operation costs, operating profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sensible. When it, you know, there's, well, I'll talk about this in my story in a minute. There's, an, there's a question of scale and sort of rate of growth here that I think if they do this sensibly, They'll be in a better position in the future. I but absolutely agree with that. It's it's like the you Jesus. know if, if you're doing a marathon, I know I know we agree. Um, you know if, if, if they're doing a marathon, they're they're stopping the sprint and they're just kind of you know going to settle into a nice little jog yeah. and just work out something more sustainable. I I, I agree. I, I thought it was a. I, I I did see the proclamations of doom about the newsletter industry, but no, um, I don't think that's right. No, I, I don't think that's right off there. So Time Out magazine has just printed its last edition after 54 years. I'm going to be brutally honest here and Please. tell you, I thought it had already stopped printing. <laughs> uh, I it was kind of surprised pandemic, though, by this. Yeah. I thought they'd already stopped. I mean, they went out with buying, they had like four different colors, covers, so people are like buying collector's issues of the last one, so maybe that'll put some money back into the three million pound losses they've got. I have one of them. <laughs> you should have bought four. Oh, shit, right. um, so now they're going to focus on digital information, no surprise there, and expansion of the food markets that they had. I think the big one was in Portugal, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, really good. Anyway, Colin Morris has been writing about this on Flashes and Flames. As always, he's uh, writing among it with the numbers and all sorts. And The one thing that he said is that there's still an opportunity in print for savvy city-focused media organisations, and I 100% agree However, the one thing I would add to that, and it goes back to the Substack story, it's got to be about scale and ambitions. Time Out blew up, kind of, because of the private equity purchase and then the IPO and all that. Just They just went into 30 cities at one go, and it, was, it just looks like it was a mess. I think one of the things that I saw around this was the idea that they haven't actually scaled their digital to the extent they probably needed to by the time they cut print. Yeah, they, they they never really managed the transition particularly but well. they talked about that. Do you remember this? It's probably five or six years ago. Do you remember the stories that were there about this digital development that they were doing in the States and it was going to be this amazing thing and it was 
It was basically going to be. If I'm going to be brutal though, five or six, five or six years ago was too late. You know, the um, the competitors, Colin Morrison highlights were were sort of doing well in digital like ten years ago. That's a make drop right there. So my my story, um, it's it's one that has sort of slipped under the radar a little bit. But Bonnie News and A Media are actually doing the opposite to many media organisations who are pulling out of Russia, and they're actually launching a new digital newspaper in the country. So Repost, which is the, the site they've launched, is hoping to reach a young audience inside Russia, uh, providing and curating Russian language news. They've got a team of about ten journalists they've hired. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. They've both companies have got quite long histories in Eastern European press, but they. They've sort of not really said that it's for for freedom of expression, but they they're very much sort of nudging that way. That um, you know, their, their contribution to Repost is now a natural extension of our journalistic pledge to strengthen freedom of expression in Russia, uh, which Amelia's. I know nothing said. about this story. I haven't read it. I haven't heard about it. This is the first I've heard about it. But that just strikes me as really, really bad—a bad idea. In what sense? If they've got journalists in Russia, freedom of expression is a non-fucking starter. If they don't have journalists in Russia, then they're not doing anything really any different than the rest of the world's press. So what? I just don't. Other than maybe they're doing it in Russian language. I mean, I want to see it succeed, but Absolutely. like you said, there it's, it's yeah. I mean, the, the, they've done a big sort of call that they want they want more publishers to kind of join in and make almost a coalition of things. That they, they actually um, framed it off the back of a lot of the work that's been done in Ukraine with Ukrainian media. They said, like, don't forget, there's a there's still an information need in Russia as well. Um, so there's sort of that pitching is a a very subtle kind of antithesis, I suppose, to the a lot of the propaganda out there. But there was a line in this one ifra piece that made my eyebrows raise a little bit. That they said. Um, they said, we think that well-established and respected publishers can offer financial backing and industrial knowledge. That's fine. And as Repost targets digital natives in Russia, there may also be product leanings, product learnings for the partners. Are they seeing this as a bit of a chance to scoop up some of the kind of ad and, and product stuff that's been left by other publishers now? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just think Russia's a place that, you know, the way it affects Russian media is to get put into fuck. Oh, okay. All right. Problem, problem solved. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> next, global warming. <laughs> this week I'm speaking with Lance Johnson, CEO of Recurrent Media. We spoke about acquisition strategy, brand integration, and the importance of investing in talent. But first, I asked Lance to describe Recurrent, a media business that many people may not have heard of. Yeah, we're a very young company. Um, you know, we were started just about three years ago um, under different brands of our of our main investor, North Equity, and we introduced the recurrent brand last summer, um, which is the umbrella brand across our now twenty five brands and media. So you may not know Recurrent, but you certainly know some of our other brands like Popular Science, yeah. which is celebrating its hundred and fiftieth year anniversary this year. Domino, the interior design magazine, yeah. Outdoor Life, Field and Stream. So we're, uh, you know, we're about a four-year-old digital media company. Um, come a long way in just those four years, and we're really trying to build, you know, a different kind of media company. One that's really putting editorial first, remaining true to our brand values while remaining profitable, and really trying to make Recurrent the best place for creative talent. 
um, so that they can focus on creating great written content, great podcasts, great video, and delegate the rest of the things to our to our recurrent leads. So in terms of the business structure or infrastructure, if you like, are the brands fairly separate from that the kind of back office stuff that you 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 know that they, you've just said that they can take advantage of? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And the org structure is something we've focused a lot on here. You know, I've been at different media companies over the years and learned good and bad lessons from those experiences. I mean, when I was at Yahoo 20 years ago, a lot of the businesses we bought, you know, we kind of destroyed the culture because we fully consolidated them. And when easy. I was at Naspers, easy to you know, do, just, huh? yeah, exactly. Like, integrations are tough. When I was at Naspers, we didn't integrate anything. So at Recurrent, we're really trying to go for like a golden middle approach, right. if you will, yeah, yeah. where the, I think of the individual brands as federated states, giving those creative people the kind of freedom and independence they crave to create great content. And then, the you know, the engineering and IT and product, the HR yeah. and talent recruiting, the monetization that sits with Recurrent as service functions to the core of the business, which are, you know, the people creating the great written content, the great videos, the great podcasts, things like that. Yeah. So you're only four years old. You've got 25 brands. I think I read somewhere that you were acquiring a brand a month last year. Is that right? Is that, are you growing that fast? We've been highly acquisitive and I'll have to double check, but I think we acquired nine businesses last year. Right. And then we just, you know, to that point we've raised you know, 75 million and around we announced in October. And then we just announced around uh, led by Blackstone uh, of 300 million. So I think going forward, we'll continue to be very acquisitive. You know, we're, we're growing from a much, much larger base now, but we'll try to stay very disciplined, especially as, you know, the market environments become a bit more uncertain and we'll have to see how, you know, asset prices reset as we go through this next yeah. economic cycle. What makes a brand a target for you guys? What, what sort of defines what you're looking for? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's, it's great content. I mean, we always say audience first, revenue second. And you know, you're only gonna have a, a committed audience, an engaged audience, a delighted audience. And by delighted, we mean an audience that's spending more and more time with you each month voting with their time. So first and foremost, it's, you know, it's great people creating great content. And then if we see an opportunity where, hey, we can distribute that content to a wider audience, we can amplify that content through social media channels, we can monetize that content much better through programmatic advertising or direct advertising or affiliate commerce. And we can see those things from the outside, right? We can see how well does this site, which has a great brand, do programmatic advertising, for example, mm. or from the outside, how well is this site set up for SEO so that, you know, people who don't know that site may find it in Google. But I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's about great brands creating great content. And we want a direct relationship with the audience that are coming to us directly every month because they're having an experience that, you know, that delights them and makes them want to spend more time with us. The reality is you're going to end up taking on brands that are, <laughs> if they were ridiculously profitable, you probably wouldn't be buying them, right? Because they wouldn't be, they'd be too expensive or they wouldn't be up for sale. So is there a 
piece of work that you're doing there that you're going in that I, I hate to use the word fix, but are you going in and fixing these brands? Yeah, I mean, I think it that that's changed over time. I mean, when we were smaller and had to be more opportunistic, we'd see opportunities that maybe others were missing. Um, and it's really a credit to our founders that, you know, early on, they saw that some of these iconic brands were being undervalued. And at the same time, you have this macro shift away from these large social platforms like Facebook. You know, audiences are craving a real authentic experience from brands that they trust. And I think it's a misconception that you, know, you have to buy a brand that's struggling or you see all kinds of inefficiencies in order to make money. You can also buy a brand that's thriving, like we did with Donut Media, that's yeah. really the leader in uh, automotive content on YouTube. But in that brand, we saw, hey, look, automotive is very important to us. It's a great category with a lot of great advertisers and uh, you know, a vast audience that's very interested in that. But we also saw in Donut a team that has the DNA to take their model to other categories that we focus on, like military, like science, like outdoor. So it really depends deal by deal. And you know, for a long time, we were kind of under the radar. I think now, especially with the Blackstone funding, some deals will get more competitive. But again, you know, in parallel to that, the, the macro environment's always changing. So we take a very disciplined approach to what we're buying at the right price with the right thesis. And, uh, you know, that's not going to change going forward. That's your background, right? You come from an M&A background. Um, you know, I've done operating roles. I've also been in venture capital. And I think, you know, for me at Recurrent, um, you know, VC or banking or consulting, those are great fields, right? You're around very smart people and it's intellectually very varied. But, you know, I was I was doing investing right before Recurrent, but you know, what I don't like about that is you're not building one thing. Yeah. So it's been super gratifying at Recurrent, you know, over the last few years to see us go from just a couple of brands to now 25, you know, just from 20 people to over 300. And, you know, as much as we've achieved so far, I really feel like this is early innings of how much growth we had of a uh, have ahead of us, both on the audience side as well as on the monetization side of these of these great brands. If I'm sat working for for a media owner, and someone says, "Oh, there's a finance company is going to buy us," I'm immediately going, right. "Oh my god, what's what's coming right. next?" You know, I've all the yeah, stories about sure. old and global getting into newspapers and asset basically asset stripping. You guys yeah. don't do that. Or certainly what I'm reading, that is not what you do. So how do you, what's different about the way you approach these things? Yeah, good question, Peter. I mean, that's definitely the stereotype of yeah. private equity, right? You come in, you buy a thriving business, fire half the staff, make it very lucrative for yourself, and then sell it to someone else. You know, that's that's not really what we're doing here. You know, we every business we bought, we've come in and hired people and brought over existing teams uh, where we're investing in them. Generally, you know, I'll tell you the story of Bob Vila. That was really our second main acquisition. We bought the drive from Meredith Time Inc. property um, in late 2018. And then we bought Bob Vila right at the beginning of 2020. And it was just four people. Um, Bob Vila, you know, the iconic DIY personality in the States and beyond. But, you know, he... You know, he'd been, um, you know, 
keeping the business relatively small. It's just four people. It was profitable. Uh, we came in and said, Bob, look at all these different ways we can grow that brand into all these other channels. You know, today, Bob Vila is 40 people and it's one of wow. our most profitable brands. So we've, we've more than 5x the revenue, 5x the audience. It's a very profitable business. So that's what we're looking for. You know, really these, these uh, iconic brands, great businesses that'll benefit from investment and work really well with the recurrent model. And it's interesting, we talk a lot about right sizing in the podcast. Um, usually that's about brands that have too many people working for them in the market that they're in. But the, the description you've just made, the right sizing is actually going from four staff to 40 staff to take advantage of the opportunity. That's a really different way of looking at things. Yeah, I think, you know, we think about it as you know, these are 360 media companies where you really need a diversified set of revenue streams beyond just advertising. Advertising is great. And we you know, are huge believers and in big investors in programmatic advertising and direct advertising, but also doing affiliate commerce, also doing things like product licensing and content licensing. We're very interested in subscriptions yeah. and memberships where... You know, those services, you know, I talked about delighting your audience that they spend more time with you. Also, if you provide services that are essential, essential services are those that they'll pay for, right? So those are memberships and things like that. And we've benefited, you know, honestly, the last couple of years during COVID, you know, everything in the home category, everything in the outside category has just boomed. So I think some of that's a secular shift where we'll continue to benefit, but it probably won't be as much growth as we saw you know, on a year and year year over year basis the last two years. Do you think every brand kinda ends up with its own revenue mix? You know, one of the dangers is that you get this cookie cutter approach. Everyone has to have programmatic, yeah. everyone has to have subs, everyone has to have e commerce. Do you think brands really end up with their own revenue mix? Yeah, I mean we talk about the recurrent playbook which took me around to figure out what we meant by that. But it's really just, you know, what's our strategy for these different brands? And it varies by brand. I mean, we're always going to look at, can we run that playbook fully across this brand? You know, all those different revenue streams, all those different ways to build audience. But generally, these brands are coming at it from, you know, a different perspective. You know, Bob Vila was really a small affiliate commerce site where we've added direct and programmatic advertising to that mix. Uh, Domino was purely a direct advertising business where we've added affiliate commerce. You know, Jancis Robinson, who's very well known in Europe, especially in Britain, UK, you know, that's a pure subscription service yeah. where we're working with Jancis and her team over time. You know, is there selective advertising we can do that enhances the brand, doesn't damage the brand? So I think it depends brand by brand, how we, you know, execute our strategy. Is that coming from, I mean, I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure how you work, but is that coming from the people within the brand telling you guys what works or is that you going into the brand and saying, okay, here's what we should be trying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a balance. And, and these are media businesses. So we're, we're very deferential to the teams who, you know, have been running these business and the creative talent at those businesses. You know, we are, Matt Young, our CRO said it well. I mean, we have kind of a servant leader management style where we're active listeners right. with the yeah. teams. This With creative talent, as you know, that is not going to work <laughs> a command and control style saying this is where we're going and, you know, get aboard. You know, we don't get involved at all 
at the recurrent side on the editorial plans of these teams. Like I said, they have total freedom and independence to create great content, which is what they crave. And then great creative talent wants to be around other great writers, other great creative talent, right? A players want to work with A players, that Jack Welch line. So I think that's very true. So as we come in, you know, initially it's, we have some ideas about where we could grow the business, obviously, but, you know, especially the first few months, first six months, we're building trust with those teams. And then we go forward together on a plan where we agree about, you know, what are the highest priorities to get started with. So do you think you found that golden medal for the integration? Are you there yet? Uh, we're working on it. I mean, it's a work in progress and it's a balance. I mean, even very large companies struggle with integrations. I was talking to some of the senior leaders at Salesforce, you know, which is a huge company, massive resources. And they said to me, the hardest thing they do is integrations, you know, getting the sales teams and incentives aligned for the acquired brand and the umbrella brand that's across the, the larger entity. You know, how do you do the product and technical integration itself? How do you incentivize the people to stay through the, you know, the uncertainty that's going to be part of any transaction, no matter how well you execute it? I'm very focused in my role as CEO on culture, making sure we have the right people in the right seats and removing any obstacles so that they can focus on doing their work. And then I think as a management team, your other main focus needs to be seen around the corner, you know, what opportunities are out there for us and you know, what risks, you know, maybe around the corner that we need to try to avoid. So what you see around the corner that other people can maybe benefit from your, from your insight? Yeah, well, I mean, we've had, you know, we've been through a lot of turbulent times globally, yeah. right, with COVID and all the rest of it. And, you know, but as part of that, there was a ton of stimulus in the system, right? Tons of monetary accommodation, huge fiscal deficits, at least in the U.S. and I think in Europe as well. So I think we're going to, you know, we're going to come into a time where it's a bit more, it's growth in a more disciplined manner. You know, interest rates rising in the U.S., more volatile uh, stock markets, obviously. We'll see what the impact is in the ad market. Thus far, we haven't seen, you know, a dramatic shift uh, in in the advertising market, whether direct or programmatic. We're monitoring that very closely, but that's also why having you know this diverse set of revenue streams is so essential. You know, the ups and downs of the economic cycle, if you have a strong affiliate commerce pillar, if you have a very strong subscription revenue stream, you know, you can you can somewhat protect yourself. So we're we're focused on that. In terms of your revenue breakdown, what's what's the sort of one, two, three? Is it advertising, subscriptions, e-commerce? Yeah. Yeah, so the main focus for us, we're really 80-20 business now. The three main revenue streams are programmatic advertising, direct advertising, and affiliate commerce. Some people call e-commerce. And then that other 20% are areas where we're placing strategic bets, where we think you know, one of those could really grow to be one of the most significant. You know, when we look out three, four, or five years, you know, we think the business will be less than 50% dependent on advertising. Right. My hunch is subscriptions, memberships will be one of the larger ones there. We also do, um, you know, merchandise around some of our video brands, events, I think post COVID, there's a real hunger to get out there 
interact with people, meet some of our personalities. We acquired um, just a few months ago Business of Home, which has a large Future of Home event in the fall in New York. But I think those kind of events are things we can do with some of our other brands because, you know, the, the audience for these brands are so passionate about these, these categories, about the personalities we have at these brands. You've got some verticals developing. You've got home and you've got automotive. Yeah. Do you get sort of cross-fertilization or even cross-selling between the different verticals? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And we do a little bit of that, but I think that's one of the growth drivers going forward is you don't want to force yeah. that, but where it's organic and makes sense, I think that'll be a competitive advantage as the recurrent network is broader. Right now, the categories we're in, we really like. Home and garden has been great. Uh, automotive and defense, uh, science, tech, and outdoor. Yeah. Um, men's lifestyle. We also have a brand. So I think we like those categories we're in now. We'll continue to invest in those. And if we see the right partner, the right opportunity, now with this new backing, I think some other categories we may go into as well. Does that start a whole process for you? There's a finance round, you've got more money, and then that's you back in that kind of acquisition phase. You're starting to look again and starting to see what's out there. Yeah, the team we work, you know, that, that handles that is always looking <laughs> to keep those guys disciplined. It's amazing how many wonderful businesses and assets there are out there. Um, so we're going to continue to be very disciplined focus on these categories where we have a strong foothold. Just in the past, you know, businesses have come across our path that we really liked and had a very clear thesis on, but we just, you know, we didn't have the um, quick enough access to funding to be a competitor in those bids. Going forward, that won't be the case with obviously with a large partner like Blackstone. So if I was running a media business and I wanted you guys to buy me, what would you advise that I mm -hmm. should be doing to make me a target? Yeah, like I said, I think, you know, probably some of your some of your business metrics will speak for themselves. <laughs> you know, if you have a if you have a large and growing audience um, in a in a category that people are passionate about, you know, it's likely that you're on our list. Um, we're also going to grow, like I mentioned, into video. Video is great because it's so engaging. Right. I talked about delighting audiences, you know, in, in video, you tend to have a lot longer engagement. So I think beyond automotive and video, you're going to see us go into video and some of these other categories that we're already in. So that'll be a big focus for us in 2022. So is that something that you would bolt onto the existing brands that you've got? It would deepen the kind of engagement that you've got with them? Exactly. We view it as verticals. So Donut Media, we view it as part of our automotive vertical, just deepening that engagement with the audience through video. So if we go out and find something in outdoor or home and garden, or science and tech, you know, whether it's written podcast or video, you know, it's that category. It's people interested in that category. And that's how we view it. Great. I have one last question for you and it's maybe a little left field. We always ask our guests, what was the last piece of media that they really enjoyed? Whether that's a book or a podcast or a movie or a TV show or a documentary or whatever, what was the last thing that you really enjoyed? You know, I mentioned we just had a baby girl. So we've been staying in a lot, looking after her and watching a lot of Netflix and HBO and things like that. Um, I'm actually watching right now. I'm always a couple years behind. We're watching Ted Lasso. So it's, it's nice to see these images of London, you know, where I spent five years. Um, but yeah, that's, that's our, that's the, we're on season two. So we have a ways to go. 
And just a reminder of our appeal for help letter, please go to voices.media to read it. And if you can share this episode, our newsletter or any of our work with, with your colleagues, please do. Um, every share, recommendation and any feedback you can give is really honestly hand on heart appreciated by all three of us. And we've got, it's been a nice time in the WhatsApp group this week, sort of sharing. <laughs> um, yeah. most, mostly nice things, some constructive things, but th- thank you all the same for any feedback you can give us oh no we're like if anything we would appreciate the constructive stuff more at the moment like as, as nice as it is to hear that people enjoy us <laughs> and tell us to jet- jettison the interviews <laughs> it's actually probably like a, a slightly more constructive thing to hear you know what we need to change are but we if, wasting our time <laughs> are we wasting your you, time <laughs> we're wasting your time more yeah. <laughs> and if you do want to give us a couple of quid to help us sort this all out, then you can go to our Kofi page. You can go to voices.media slash support in order to uh, reach that page. Uh, also, we have a daily newsletter, uh, four stories that you want to know about. And it goes out every morning at seven o'clock, straight to your inbox to tell you what's going on. So you can be really smart when you get in the office and talk to people like you really know what's happening. Just go to voices.media and sign up. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and a tour through maybe some less salacious news and views from the media world. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.